and the Sidekicks on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Good Tuesday, Jay Sandoz, Mike Gallagher, Sandoz, and the Sidekick as we take a look at all things ETSU Athletics. Recap a couple of ETSU men's basketball games. Stack report. Nope, we're not going to do hedge funds. We're just going to do Southern Conference teams. Stock bell. Like the oh, yeah, the little, yeah. Stock aboard, and then you only get that if you're up, and if you're down, you get just like a, I don't know, plummeted into the ocean. What does that sound like? Plummet into the ocean. You were plummeted into the ocean? No. Did you try? It's a good time. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I've lost great time. And then the last thing we're doing, what do we do the last thing we're doing? Bull predictions, and what a week. What a week it was. I am so excited to talk about that with you. I don't even remember what my men's was. I will let you know this. We each got at least one, which is the rarity of all rarities. I, I got one. I love it. I don't even know. Here we go. All right. Look at this. I'm excited. You may have got two by the way you're acting, but I'll still, I got one. We're also Friday going to talk, or Thursday, whatever day it ends up being, whatever works with the schedule that is rapidly, highly, extremely high, as high as the mountain that you were coming down last night during the, and I want to hear about that, by the way. I'm sure that was quite the traversion, to make up a word. Mike knows the English language, Love the traversion it. down mm-hmm. the mountain mm-hmm. uh, and the slippery roads with all the snow and about 10, 11 o'clock, especially after the loss, and I'm sure didn't feel um, nearly as confident as you would if it were a You mean when we started up the mountain at 11 and got down the mountain at 1230? Oh, wow. If that <laughs> tells you about how the trip was. So Thursday or Friday we'll do signing day, talk about signing yep. day. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, tomorrow, Wednesday, football signing day, so pay attention to all social media accounts. Not going to be a huge yeah, class for not. a variety of reasons. We'll talk about that, and then, of course, preview Chattanooga your favorite team, the Chattanooga Mocs, who are the best team in the history of the world. According um, to me. Thursday or Friday, according to you. So we got a big show then. But yes, you are alive. I'm glad to see that today. It, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about maybe at the end of our Wofford breakdown. Let's talk, uh, boys, the tale of two different games, right? Citadel plays new defense and welcomes new defense and allows ETSU to have five uh, double-digit scores, three 20-point scores. Then you go to Wofford, and it's a fight in the phone booth as usual. It's just... Um, Back and forth, and to me, it was a typical ETSU Wofford. The the and I love quoting Mike Young, high level basketball game, and it felt that way. What I liked about it was it felt like a tournament implication game, you know, it, it, and that's what it normally feels like when you get those. And I thought Furman had a little bit of that feel. The second game, the first game, maybe just because, or maybe just for me, because Ladarius Brewer wasn't there. Maybe I tamper low expectations, but I fully expected a battle when ETSU beat Furman, which obviously they did. I felt like Citadel could be a trap game if you're not paying attention. Bucks fine, they didn't have any issues. Then Wofford, I thought this would be, okay, is this going to be separation from ETSU versus everyone else, or is it going to be what I thought it was going to be this year, which was no clear-cut runaway team and four, three, four, five teams could end up being somewhere jumbled atop the standings and have to go to all these tiebreakers, which will be more difficult this year because we're still, or at least I'm not, I don't know about you, I'm still not convinced every game is going to be winning. Well, right now, ETSU only has 17 scheduled, correct? The Sanford home game right, is has still not been rescheduled on the schedule. So I am 100% with you, and that means every game is that much bigger. Now, it's going to be unfortunate if ETSU doesn't get a chance to play that Sanford game because, as we know, Sanford is going to be a bottom three team in the league, and especially having them at home, it seems like almost an automatic victory, and that's kind of what it looked like against the Citadel on Saturday, too. 
you and me talked about a lot of stuff yesterday. We probably just should have done the podcast, sat in my office, just recorded it on a phone, and then put it out, because we were talking over a ton of stuff yesterday, including exactly what you just mentioned. I thought last night, even without Morgan Stafford and uh, Sam Godwin, that this was a game that Wofford was destined to win simply because of what you just said. We talked about it preseason. We have thought that this is going to be a parity-laden league. It wouldn't have made any sense if the league was going to be what we thought it was going to be all along that ETSU would win this game and be in the commanding position. We talked about it in Blue Notes yesterday. You talked about it on the air as well. The commanding position that they would be in only two games against the other three teams in the top four the rest of the way, Furman with four, uh, UNCG and Wofford with three. And so that inside path that ETSU was about to take, on top of the fact that they would only have one loss, Wofford would have, have three in the league, UNCG uh, would have two, and so would Furman. Um, you've already gone to the road to face all the teams as well. Your only two games left against the top four were at home. For a variety of reasons, it could have been the win that I think, and of course you can't say this so early, but I think would have sealed the league for the Bucks because everything was in their favor the next ten games of the season. Unfortunately, it didn't go that way. Um, other thing we talked about, the Citadel was just shocking to me to see how things unfolded. I did not expect that type of game. I thought it was going to be tighter. I thought it was going to be closer. I thought that they would be more polished on the offensive end. And that was the strange thing to me because they do average 89 points a game. They almost got there. I you know, you knew they weren't going to play a whole lot of defense. That one game against Wofford was an aberration, right? 69 points, the least that they had given up the entire year. They weren't going to put forth that kind of defensive effort again. But Caden Rice took some really mind-boggling shots. I know he can make them. I know he's the top three-point shooter in the nation. But some off-balance from the logo, just strange, strange decisions. And Aiden Brown didn't score the first eight, ten minutes of the game. Now, all of a sudden, you look down, and two minutes later, he's got ten points. But it didn't seem like he really affected the contest. And, and that was so confusing to me for such a prolific player. Um, where ETSU, you had four different players, I think it was four, really stand out and affect the contest. Sorrell Smith, right, 15 of the first, 30 points. Then you had Ladarius Brewer as your bridge. And Demari Monsanto, who didn't score in the first 17 minutes, 24 seconds of the game, come on strong the last 22 minutes, and then Ty Brewer closed it out. I mean, it was just so beautiful to see how the offense operated and the individual efforts that ETSU got where with the Citadel, they had some nice numbers, but did anybody really affect the game on the offense, man? I didn't think so. No, and, you know, they're going to win. I, I talked a little bit to, to Wofford about I talked to one of their assistant coaches. I talked to uh, uh, the radio crew. You know, what, what was the difference in the Citadel game? Because, you know, they led, it was a 12-14, whatever it was, in the first half. And basically, they got lulled into playing Citadel's game. And that's all really Citadel can do. You know, they get you to speed up, to take crazy shots, to do what they do. And especially if Citadel hits some shots, I think it puts people on the, you know, I've got to go score quickly and you get them going. I think it's similar to, not in the exact same way, but sort of how I think Coach Shea mentioned how Wofford's defense took ETSU out of its rhythm. I think the key for Citadel is if they get people playing their game and taking wild, quick, crazy shots, not when in the rhythm of the offense, especially for Wofford. They're a rhythmic team and what they want to do. You can tell, you know, when they're going through that drought and all of a sudden the first shot went down, when they ran the second play and and, uh, secondary transition, and before the guy took the shot, I think I said, oh, that's good, even before it went in, because you could kind of see 
like they, they're getting in that rhythm, and I think that's the big thing for teams you can't get in Citadel's pace of play. You can't let them junk up the game, for lack of a better uh, pure X's and O's breakdown. I mean, I think that's how they want. They play helter-skelter. They don't mind the guy taking horrific shots. They have either ISO or terrible shots, and a lot of terrible shots happen to go in, and then they get a lot of, you know, offensive rebounds, you know, because people are doing different things. And so I think Citadel's done a good job of mucking it up and doing what they can, and the teams that really don't get into that I think will beat the Citadel. The teams that kind of try to play that style of game, you know, and Citadel gets them out of what they're supposed to do, I think it's going to be a tough road against Citadel, and they're probably going to win a couple more games this year. And ETSU much too disciplined to fall into that trap. One other thing we talked about, and this is why I don't think that the Citadel, EMI, Buckyball down at Sanford works, because you have to play almost flawless basketball in order to win the style of game against any good team that you're trying to play. The teams that play offense and do it at an extremely high clip speed the game up, and just do the things that make Duggerbockham's team the Duggerbockham era, right? BMI, he did it. Now he's doing it at the Citadel. Bucky McMillan wants to do it. But you have to play almost flawless basketball to beat a good team because you're not going to defend. You're not going to play on both ends of the court. And I just don't think that that's a sustainable way to play basketball. When you're doing it on both ends, like ETSU does, what wins, offense or defense, in your mind? Defense, because I think it's been proven. Well, look at the stats for ETSU going into the Citadel game. They were last in the league in scoring offense. But they were number one in the league in scoring defense. It's a very simple argument to make when you see stats like that. The Citadel was averaging 89 points per game, fourth in the country. But they got blown out by 28. And I'll just back you up. Would you be shocked to know the best four scoring defensive teams in the league is ETSU, Wofford, UNC, G5? Does that shock you? Not at all. Because there's so little margin for error. Again, to beat a good team, because good teams do it on both ends. ETSU can clearly score and on many days outscore the Citadel. They can beat them at their own game, but they can also lock down on the other end of the court, where the Citadel is kind of that one-trick pony, right? And it's fun, and it's a great time, and I enjoy watching it. I think they have some really, really talented players. The system doesn't work, and I am not quite sure why. And Dickerbacher's got a, a great story about why he does play the style of basketball that he does, and it's very unconventional, and again, it's a good time, but it is not going to win, and it is not going to be able to stick with teams, the echelon of ETSU. We've seen it time and again, and we saw it Saturday. I mean, they just lost at Western Carolina, and, and let's let's give Western Carolina a little bit of credit, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in stocks up, stock down, just some of that, but Western Carolina, sorry for Western Carolina. Was, was able to finally get off the schneid and make it interesting, but Citadel I still think is going to get a couple of teams me to get lulled into their style, they will. and they're going to knock, you know, and again, I wouldn't beat, they've already knocked off Wofford, it wouldn't shock me if they got somebody else, and I would even tell ETSU, be a little careful going down there, because again, all you remember is, and I think this played in a little bit into the loss against Wofford, ETSU scored 112, everybody's loving themselves offensively, got off to a great start, up 26-12, and then all of a sudden, some guys doing some things they don't normally do, the offense isn't being ran the way it's supposed to be ran, and then it was a struggle to score the rest of the way. And some of that is credit on Wofford, certainly. Some of that is a discredit to ETSU and what they wanted to do offensively. I think Monsanto getting in foul trouble certainly hurt 
his momentum, but he didn't have a running mate. I mean, we went from talking about five guys, double figures, three 20-point scores, to one guy, 24 points, nobody else in double figures. And ETSU also defensively got out of position a few times. In the second half, Wofford was 9 of 11 from two. I think they were 5 of 12 from three, but 9 of 11 from two. And certainly 61% in the second half shooting is not what you expect out of head coach Jason Shea and his team giving up 52%. Now, Wofford traditionally, well, one of the better shooting teams, one of the more efficient teams if you look at the last five years of Southern Conference, and playing at home there, like most teams, more efficient than they are on the road. But certainly that felt like a game that ETSU kind of hurt themselves offensively. And then Wofford, who has a few guys that have played together in those tight situations, I think this is something that you can't learn. Even though B.J. Mack was the guy that hit the eventual shots, there were plays by Murphy and Larson that were able to kind of keep things going, settle the team, get them in the right space, and, and Hollowell. Because what did the Bucks do? And I know um, argued with uh, a couple buddies that watched the game or text me, well, you can't leave that B.J. Mack guy open. Are you kidding me? They were working on covering uh, Storm Murphy. They were working on Trey Hollowell. And the guy that's shooting you know, less than 30% from three, you're worried about the 6'8", 250 guy? Like, it's worked out for you the whole game. Yes, he hit the shot and went in. Sometimes you tip your cap. Absolutely, great job. I also think you on the other end. You had mislayup Bonnie Patterson, mislayup Charlie Weber, mislayup Ty Brewer, mislayup David Sloan. A couple of opportunities for Silas Adeke. I mean, it wasn't to me that you're going to come this year. It, it just, you know, and you had to play through contact. I mean, that was, I like that game because that's how a Southern Conference tournament game is going to be played. It was a man's game. There wasn't, and now, trust me, I'm glad ETSU was able to shoot a thousand free throws against the Citadel, but that's not how a tournament game is going to be called. I'm sorry, it's just not. It's going to be called like the Wofford game where guys were literally shoving and knocking people down to get a rebound, <laughs> and, the re- and, and nobody, I didn't see. Except for maybe during a dead ball once or twice where people just go to reference and say, hey, watch the elbow or whatever. But I didn't see openly people turn and complain. They think that's how the game is. That's how the game was called. I think both teams were prepared for that. And they played as such. And I like those games. And, yes, there was probably a couple times they might have let too much go for both ways. And, and I think I called out a couple times. I think ETSU should have been called fouls. And a couple times, you know, Wofford probably should have been called for fouls. But for the most part, Nobody had any complaints. It was not. Uh, it was only one call, I think, where a coach got a warning. But there was, you know, there's always a yes. Is there always a couple calls here or there you get fired up about? Absolutely. But I thought that game was called and was allowed to let two teams play at a high level, go at one another, and on that particular day, the better team won. Game I'm not saying it's the best team of the year, but that day I think Wofford was better. Game to me was very reminiscent of the Gardner-Webb game. So you take 34 threes in that game, make 10. ETSU yesterday, 31 threes, make 11. Second most threes you've taken the entire year. 65-60, you win against Gardner-Webb, and you lose to Wofford 67-62. Very similar games. Difference in it to me was, Gardner-Webb, you go 11-15 at the line, where yesterday you go just 5-6. I mean, you set a season high against the Citadel in free throws made with 18 on Saturday, and then you go to the line just six times. And you said it. There were both sides that were going to complain about this because it was 5 of 8 for Wofford. There weren't a lot of fouls on either side, and I think this is going to be a lesson for ETSU because you're right, a lot of shots close in missed, maybe settled for too many bad shots outside, right? You can start to see over the course of a season 
what a team wants to do offensively, where they should be when they're most effective in terms of how many attempts from two, how many attempts from three, how many times they get to the line. And when you see a team go five of six from the free throw line, a season low by far, after a season high by far, in free throws made and attempted, and you see the three-pointers that high up, 31 second most on the year. Made 11, pretty decent, 35%, but from two, like you mentioned, I mean, what, 12 of 26? 43%. 43%. Not good enough. So maybe that's part of what led to ETSU taking more outside shots, but I think that they just didn't go down low enough because eventually that's going to even out because you were a better team inside the arc than 43%. You didn't get to the free throw line, you shot too many threes, and you played right in to Wofford's hand. And early on, it looked like it was going to be a washout. I mean, it was 24-9, to then 15 straight. You knew Wofford wasn't going to get blown out. You couldn't have fallen into that lull, but it seems like ETSU almost did a little bit. And Jason Chan on Twitter last night, I, I'm glad he took responsibility. I, I think he's being a bit hard on himself. Yeah, I to- totally agree with that. I, and Kevin Brown was beside himself that he took that like that. that Take the responsibility because it right. is the right thing to do. That's right. Right. He, t- he took the brunt of it. But I think that he's being too hard on himself simply because it seemed like the tweet made it seem like it was a NCAA tournament game or a Southern Conference tournament game that this is the end of the world. And you know what? I love that about Coach Shea because he's going to go out and try to correct everything in a short period of time and have the guys ready for Wednesday against Mercer. But this is not the end of the world, right? I think he did the right thing in tweeting that. I think that taking responsibility of the head coach is awesome and not blaming anyone else and having everything fall on your shoulders, fantastic. But this is just a road loss to a Southern Conference championship contending team. And that happens. You have to hold serve at home. That's what Coach Shea always says. If ETSU gets Wofford, and I think it's the 13th, if they get Wofford in Freedom Hall, you know, take that W, then all is forgotten, right? Because you split with them, just like you always split with Furman, just like you usually split with UNCG. Um, I just think, like you said, the Bucks were not who they are when they are successful for the period of time they needed to be. Offense was really stagnant for quite some time. And B.J. Mack, guard B.J. Mack, I mean, the guy's averaging seven points per game. If he's going to score five in the clutch when he's shooting 30% from outside, we know he's talented, South Florida transfer, yes, very, very good player. But Murphy and Hollowell, I mean, even without Godwin and uh, Godwin and Safford last night, there are so many other people on the court you need to guard aside from B.J. Mack. So the people said, oh, how do you let B.J. Mack take that shot? Please take that shot. Yes, Please, every yes. Time. I, I, I couldn't have argued that more. If It's like sitting there and going, you know, and I hate when people do this, they're like, golly, man, I haven't, you know, like the backup tight end has two touchdown catches in a big game. And they're like, oh, man, are they ever going to guard that guy? I'm like, okay, well, they're trying to guard Travis Kelsey. They're trying to guard Tyreek Hill. And you're going down the list, and it's like, okay, the guy who's got five catches all year, you're not – I mean, if he beats you, great. Great. And B.J. Mack hasn't done a lot in his career yet. Now, he had a, the biggest defensive rebound because it was a one-point game with about 90 seconds to go. Then he hits the big three. Then he hits an open jumper. I mean, you just kind of tip your cap. Bucks had a couple of turnovers, missed shot. I mean, it just goes – Going back to real quick, 12 of 26 was 43%. Wofford was 62% from two, 13 of 21. Again, you're only talking about five shots less, but they made one more. But still, just converting more. On average, the Bucks are taking about, give or take, 54 shots a game. And this is very quick math, so it might be off slightly. But not by a lot. But they're averaging about 32-point field goals and 24 threes taken a game. So to me, when you see 
that five more attempts were taking from three than two to me, that, that's a little bit of an issue. And I think yes. Coach Shea said that. Go to the rim more. We, they, we were taking step-back threes instead of attacking the glass and going forward and trying to get to the foul line. Now, foul line was tough to get to. Again, I, there's if anybody complained about the officiating cost anything last night, I think you've just lost your mind and need to take the goggles off. I thought, again, it was let to be a bloodbath. Everyone knew it. It was a, a, a dogfight. I thought there were good, clean, hard fouls each way where really the – it was very little and one opportunities because people would commit a foul and commit to the foul, not hurt anybody, not throw an elbow, well, she, not she dodge anybody. That. But if they're exactly. going to foul, there are times where Troy Hollowell and Fastbreak did a great job to tie up, didn't get a shot off. Ladarius Brewer was able not just to commit a foul but tie a guy up before he couldn't get a shot off. But he gave up the free throws. That's fine. I think that's how the game is supposed to be played. I thought it was a great contest again. One of the referees looked at me. When the stretch where I think both teams had hit about three or four shots in a row early second half, and he's like, that was a good run right there. And I was like, well, it's always a high-level game. And then he said, boy, don't you wish you were fans here. And I was like, yes, yes, I do. And, I, you know, even the referee was in the moment enjoying it. And I, li- I like that. I like the fact I was able to ask a question to a referee about the, the charge call. I'm sorry, the block call in a decade because that was you have to be in a legal guarding position. If you're standing, I did not. And I said that openly. If you are not in a legal guarding position, you can't whatever. And so, basically, he had a foot on the end line or was out of, one foot was out of bounds. Thinking about it after hearing an explanation, I think it made sense, but I, I just had not heard that. And so, but being able to have those interactions courtside was good. But, I mean, even the referees live in the moment. They knew it was a good game. It was a great game. Uh, Coach McCauley stopped by, talked about what a great team we were. Um, you know, as I was packing up, we talked for about 10 seconds. But, I mean, still, I think he was appreciative of that. I know Mike Young was appreciative of it. I know C4, but I think Jason Shea is certainly appreciative of it. It was a great basketball game. I'm not sure if we would have won the game. If ETSU would have won the game, yes, we would sit in a two-game lead. I don't know if we would have won that game last night. I would have walked away sitting there going, yep, cream the crop in the league. That's it. Book it. I would have. Oh, of course you would Fly the flag, baby. All right. Fly okay. the flag. Uh, to summarize it for me, I think the last 30 seconds or so of what I have to say on it is Jason Shea called it out pregame. Wofford doesn't beat themselves. They are going to do what they need to do. If you're better, you're better. But ETSU just did not need to fall into the trap of, like you said, Saturday, put up 112, and then get a little bit away from what they do. Wofford hit the twos. They did what they were supposed to do. ETSU did not. Did they beat themselves, quote-unquote? I'm not sure if that's the case, but Wofford was Wofford. And ETSU, maybe not quite to the polish yet of the Terriers, who seemingly just every game are going to give you exactly what they need to get a victory, with exceptions like that Citadel game. But in this case, more polished versus a team that's still finding itself on a night-by-night basis and still coming along and still an ETSU is going to be better than they are right now. I think Wofford is at their peak, as they usually are, uh, but their peak is lower than what ETSU can reach. The ceiling much higher for the Bucks, and I think the next time these two teams meet, it's going to be a different story. Lots going on in Southern Conference in a week, as it has, as we've talked about this upside-down league. The Stock Report. What do we think about Southern Conference? Who's up, who's down, who is stagnant, who is Mike Gallagher going to sell, or who is he going to in a week's time, as we know? He's very emotional. Who's going to get on board with? We'll find out after this time out. Send him sidekick on the back of there. Sports Network. For the last 70 years, Johnson City Power Board has had a few different looks. But we've remained the same trusted partner we rely on. Now, we've changed our name to Bright Ridge to match our vision. 
to deliver on our promise of great service you can count on. Embracing common sense technology to strengthen the communities we serve. We're glad to be your public power provider. Bright Ridge, new name, renewed promise. Learn more at brightridge.com. Certainly, I, I think you could. I think, you know, maybe every once in a while we just check in on some seating, you know, because if there is a Southern Conference tournament, which, I'm, I mean, everybody's building towards, you know, you could get into some matchups, for an example. You know, let's say Citadel gives Wofford fifth. They've already beat them once. Would it line up to where they could have a possible second-round matchup? Do you feel that? But, yes, I think for the foreseeable, foreseeable future, there are four teams that have a three-game lead on everybody else. I think those are the four teams that – need to have the most talked about. I think they deserve the most to be talked about. That fifth team is VMI, and all of you frauds that jumped on the VMI bandwagon and said, this you is it, going into team. Greensboro, going into Greensboro, and they're taking down the Spartans, and they got absolutely bludgeoned. It was not close. It was not competitive. Dan Earl, in his time at VMI, he's a great guy, and he's a very good coach, and he just did not have a lot you of hate Dan Earl. He's great. 9-73 on the road in five and a half Earl. seasons. In Lexington, they do not get it done, and you finally got to see what that team was when Greg Parham doesn't score 23 or more, which he had done seven straight games. They came crashing back down to earth. Four-point outing for Parham, what 59 points for VMI. This high-scoring, fire away, run-and-gun offense. They didn't look too good, Jay Sandoz. They looked fine. They didn't look too good They're after fine. you put the curse on them, saying, "Oh, look at them now! Kevin Brown did it." Your guy, O.G. Zanetto, did it. Cole Spivey did it. Everybody around the league that is involved in Southern Conference basketball that has something to say, has a mouth, has a brain, apparently has a brain, apparently not after that take. VMI is going to charge into the top four and take the Southern Conference by storm. What do you think of this? I think VMI is going to help somebody win the league, and I, I hope they help the Blue and Gold win the league because I still think they're going to knock off somebody. Um, already knocked off Furman. Will they knock off UNCG at home? Can they knock off? Wofford, Wofford had to beat them on the last second shot, real close to that. So they still got a lot of winnable games. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see. But, yes, uh, they are not in the top four. I don't know that I was still going to put them in the top four. I did have them winning that game, but I don't Revision know how to put them in the top four. Would not, would not have put them in the top four. The top four is the top four. Let's look at their road the rest of the way. At okay. Wofford, at Western. Okay. I think that's okay, going to be my John Gruden win. Someone check to see if I still had a brain. Home to Stanford, home to UNCG at the Citadel versus ETSU in Lexington on February 24th at Chattanooga. Right, I so will say this. Three wins. Of course I crush VMI, right, because I have to make fun of you. But like three UNCG, Stanford, and ETSU up at Cameron Hall, for those three teams, I do have fear. 
because they are a very, very good home team. They are much different on the road, but they are very, very good at home. It's always difficult to win there in a normal year, and this is a better year than many have been for VMI. I mean, they so, got a shot of winning three, four of those games. Yeah, they do. They got they, the three and, home games and at Western Carolina. And, and in fairness, they got a shot of winning two of those games. I mean, they could win one or two as opposed to the, I don't. They, they won't win more than four in that schedule. I think if they got four and three, they need to be real happy with that. But more than likely, they'll win two or three of those games. I have them as the sixth seed. I think that Mercer is going to hop them. Now, of course, ETSU and Mercer have a big game coming up tomorrow down in Macon. You have to get on the road at probably like 3 a.m. to get down there because it probably snowed everywhere, and there's going to be 10 inches going up the mountain and down the mountain, blah, 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 blah. But I think Mercer's going to hop them. I think they stay at six, which is still a very, very good year. Stay out of the 7-10, stay out of the 8-9. That is a very quality year, but uh, yes. Try not to oversell them again because as much as you talk great about Chattanooga, and that works for them being terrible. Uh, same thing happened for VMI. I think you loving a team, except for ETSU, who are somehow immune to your curses. You talking good about a team destroys their confidence, the foundation that they sit on, and any hope of their success. I, I need to accept responsibility is what you're saying. I think that once in a while okay. it wouldn't hurt. Uh, let's see. What else we got? Sam Godwin, we know, doesn't play versus Mercer or ETSU. Wofford holds on in both just five minutes in the loss to the Citadel. Of course, Morgan Safford also missed last night. That's something we didn't talk about in segment one. Godwin and Safford being out. We don't know how long Safford's going to be out. You'd expect that to be just a one-game suspension. From what I was told, it was a one-game violation of team rules. Should, should be back next game. Godwin, it sounded like it was a pretty ugly injury. I did he, not see it. but He had a uh, not just a, uh, a pretty bad concussion, stitches above his eye, couldn't ride back on the team bus trainer had to trade cars with the, ra- the radio crew gave up their vehicle wow. to ride the bus so that the trainer and strength coach could stay at the hospital with mm-hmm. Godwin get him taken care of make sure he was okay to go now he is he's, he's back and but he's still dealing with concussion stuff and so obviously nowadays people are going to as they rightfully should take the time to come back so no timetable back on him but more than likely you're going to see him again and probably next time ETSU plays Wofford He'll be back on the floor, but I don't know that he'll be ready, you know, and I guess their next – oh, yeah, the, tomorrow. So their next game is – I don't know that he'll be ready for VMI, but it wouldn't shock me if he's back by Saturday. Does it concern you for other teams around the league that have to play Wofford that they were still able to beat ETSU last night without Goblin and Safford? I, you know, it's interesting um, because they had Safford. They only had Goblin in five minutes, but they had him at Citadel and lost. So I think at home it's always going to be tough to win there. Um, I think on the road, maybe not. A, I think it's more important for those guys to be on the road than maybe at home, uh, at least the way Wofford has played at home. Because, of course, I misspoke a while ago and said Wofford was the best road team. So, no, I had that absolutely incorrect. They were actually the best home team. Uh, and ETSU and UNCG were the best road teams. And so uh, I think it's more important that they get him back, I think, for the contest Furman at Furman Saturday than the BMI home. What did you make of the other Monday game in the Citadel and Western Carolina? We watched it. It was a noon start, which I absolutely loved. We were able to sit and watch the end of the game in the office, and you saw Hayden Brown, maybe Rice combined for 50 of the 75 that the Citadel scored, which is funny because I think when we broke down the game, or 49 of the uh, 75 that they scored, I think when we broke down the ETSU Citadel game, it was they're probably going to get two-thirds of the points. Can you get 25 points from others? In this game against Western Carolina, they did. Now, of course, the ETSU game ended up working out completely differently. But uh, for Western, you have Amir Langley off the bench with 14 points. Mason Faulkner had 21. That was good Mason Faulkner, right? 7 of 15, 7 of 8 from the line, had 5 assists. 
more rebounds. That's much more who he is with those 21 points. Corey Hightower, another big day with 16 points, so he did take 15 shots to get there. Comes down to the final seconds. I am happy to at least not feel as crazy as I once did that I thought Western Carolina was going to be good because we also went over our preseason predictions for the Southern Conference uh, in the office yesterday, and my head was spinning about not only Western Carolina, also Mercer, which we'll talk about in just a second as we break down the ETSU Mercer game, but Western being winless, it was just shoving the knife right into my back repeatedly. And so they finally get the victory as Faulkner, we talked about his Tennessee Tech winner, gets another winner yesterday. Well, and the, the thing, you knew you weren't going to pass the ball. No. That was the one thing late. As soon as we got situation, I think I looked at both of you and I said, Faulkner's taking a shot, he's not passing. You know, and, and I think you kind of got out of the biggest thing, a couple missed free throws by Citadel late, right? Moff had a chance to put it up three, so worst-case scenario, it's a tie game. And then the other thing we didn't really talk about was the block shot at the end. Hayden Brown has a chance to win the game for Citadel on the other end. Not a goal test. And no, we went back and watched the rewind up about a thousand times, and it was a clean block uh, and a nice play. But they were, um, let's see, they were tied 13 times in 17 lead changes in what ended up being a very entertaining game and a big win um, for West Carolina to finally get that first win, and yes, you got a little bit more than Mason Faulkner. Just a ridiculous game from Hayden Brown again. 16 points, 17 rebounds, uh, almost a double-double for Xavier Cork. I mean, Faulkner, as you mentioned, the 21 points. I thought it was an entertaining game, and again, just shows you sort of the depth of the league is much better, even if it's, you know, teams at the bottom of the standings. It was a pretty good little basketball game and a dogfight, but for West Carolina, we'll see. Does that get them going now that they've got a win under the belt and can they recapture what they had before the season, uh, conference season started? Let's see if you can remember how we talked ourselves into Mercer possibly being able to be 8-0 right now. They've lost three games in conference by three points apiece, lost by 13 to UNCG and Wofford. Games they score 77 or more, they're 10-3. and Games they don't, they're 0-3. You and me went back and forth and found a way that Mercer could have won all of their games. Do you want to run through it or should I? Uh, the one thing I can tell you was the first loss of the year, right, they didn't have Alvarez. So I remember that was one of them. I know they've had three, three point or less losses, so clearly you can flip that. The foul trouble for Alvarez against foul trouble Wofford, against uh, UNCG. UNCG. Uh, he picked up that technical foul at three fouls and fouled out with eight minutes to go in the UNCG game. And I can't remember what the last game was. I talked to Cincy. Was there five? There five losses, right? Five losses. That was so, it. Yeah. So three one point game. Alvarez foul trouble. Alvarez didn't play. Alvarez also didn't play against Furman, and they only lost by three. So we were able to work our way from three and five major disappointment because we got to make no baby coming into the year. You and Kevin Brown, ETS men's basketball SID, had Mercer winning the league. I had UNCG, but I thought that Mercer was going to be right around the top. And so looking at three and five, you say, "Wow, what is going on?" But you look a little bit closer, and it's easy to see how the team has gotten to where they are, and easy to see how they can turn it around and still make a charge to the top. I mean, they can score, and I think they can run into a team that particularly doesn't score well. I mean, they're, you know, they average 76. They're right on their win-loss average as far as points, uh, and especially conference play. Again, if you go a little bit more apples to apples. But they also started the year winning right, Georgia Tech. They beat Georgia State. They beat Georgia So they had some wins on their schedule that looked really good, too, was playing good basketball. And then Alvarez gets hurt. He's in a boot. Misses a few games. I thought maybe, well, okay, well, that takes him out. They lost a couple games there, but then he came back. They were playing better, got a couple wins, but then they had a couple, you know, nail-biter losses. Alvarez 
gets in foul trouble, picks up technical foul, has to sit for a lot, then he fouls out of the game, eight minutes to go. And so they just got some things that aren't quite working out for him. And I thought because of who they returned from a year ago, they add the two uh, Division One transfers in Hossie from South Carolina, Alvarez from Fairfield. You add that with Cummings, who missed almost all of last year, right, that they had the pieces and the scoring power to do it. They've got enough big guys to match up with people. They can go small and shoot the basketball. There's a lot what you like about the team. And I think a lot of, of Greg Gary just being able to talk with him in the short period of time that he's there that I felt like ETSU and some other teams were going to be slightly stepped back. And I think slightly step back is probably right for some teams. And they're ready to kind of jump into that, like, top four conversation. And they just haven't. Now, again – I think they could, you look at their schedule, it sets up fairly nicely. They could get a few wins and get on a run and get up there near the top four. But with five losses, I don't know that anybody, I don't know anybody's going to crack the top four unless one of the top four teams just flat out lays an egg the rest of the year. I I think the three-game lead for all four of those teams is just going to be insurmountable for everybody else chasing. So it's one through four is going to have a dogfight. And in all honesty, five through eight is going to have a dogfight. Or five through seven, I should say. I think the bottom three is still the bottom. The razor-thin line between winning and losing for a team like Mercer means that every single player that you play has to be at their best because you've got five guys that have played all 16 games, and Alvarez, you know, he's going to be a starter. Nobody else has played more than 13. They're struggling with some depth issues, and when you have a guy like, I'm going to point out Jeff Gary, 46% from the floor last year, 34 of 100 this year, 34%. Shooting it from three, about the same, but he's down five points per game. You lost three games by three points apiece. If he's just performing to what he was, I'm not even asking him to take steps forward, but if he performed to what he was last year, and obviously things change game to game, I'm just generalizing, he is the difference in those three losses by three points, and they're six and two. And they're one of five teams then that are right there with two losses that are in that virtual tie, tie in the loss column for the top of the Southern Conference. You mentioned to me that you think they've got some issues with closers. Who's taking that final shot? You lose a lot of close games. I think it should be Ross Cummings, right? But then you've got Alvarez, who, when he's at his best, I think is as good as any player in the Southern Conference. You've got Leon Ayers, the NJCAA All-American that's come over and is shooting 57%. You've got Magic Bender, 65% from the floor. So maybe there is some dissension there, and I'm not sure if there is necessarily agreement on who's going to take the last shot, should be taking the last shot, supposed to be taking the last shot. Late game execution, one of the things that Jason Shea talked about last night when he sent out that tweet. It's my fault we haven't done a good enough job executing down the stretch. Is that the same thing for Greg Gary's team? I mean, I think, too, when you look at the losses, okay. Loss Wofford. I'm I'm not talking about score-wise right now, but just losses. Okay, lose Wofford. They lose that Furman at Chad. Those aren't awful. Lose at UNCG. They lose Wofford. I mean, you look. I mean, if taking on the only loss, maybe the Chattanooga road game, you know, and yet the three-point loss at Wofford, sure, tough one. Three-point loss at Furman, sure. Three-point loss at Chat. Sometimes you have to learn how to win, and I think Jason Shea's cryptic text wasn't cryptic, but if you read, I think a little more into that is yes, we have worked on late-game situations. Yes, this that, another, but also we haven't identified who's going to be the guy. We think we know who the guy is. And for Mercer, we think we know who the guy is. But right now, we haven't seen the guy. And so it's going to be interesting to see. And it's also odd that they've lost a couple of games 
by a final score of 83-80. They also did win one of those close games, 83-80. to I don't know what it is about that score in particular, but they were able to beat VMI at home by three points. And uh, they beat Western by two. So they are locked in for the most part to these one-score games. I mean, they've had, you look at it, the Wofford game, obviously, with a little bit of a blowout, lost by 13. They also lost by 13 to UNCG. Then you're talking about three points, three points, two points, three points, three points, three points. The, the margin for them is very slim, and they could very easily turn those three-point deficits to three-point wins, or they could continue to have three-point losses. I think the big question for ETSU is obviously the quick turnaround, but is Ladarius Brewer ever someone that's going to have back-to-back bad games? I think my answer is no, and that was only his second bad game. ETSU first bad game against a Division One opponent. Remember, he had nine points against the University, had eight points against Wofford, three for eleven from the floor. It's easy to settle in as an ETSU fan, supporter, somebody that covers the team, and just say, "Well, you know, Ladarius is good for sixteen or eighteen a night." But then, when you don't get that from him, your eyes kind of pop, and you say, oh, "What happened to Ladarius?" Well, everybody's going to have a bad game here and there, and he still had eight points. You know, quite honestly, two of eight from outside, not great, right? Kind of indicative of how ETSU's. Uh, night from three-point land went. They did go 11 for 31, but outside of Damari Monsanto, just five for 22. By the way, there's nobody better right now. I'm not sure in the country than Damari Monsanto. He has had an absolutely unbelievable last few weeks. Uh, The conference freshman of the year in a runaway, and I think there's some bigger awards on the horizon for him as well. Only 12 shots to get to 24 points. But when Ladarius Brewer doesn't perform, who is that second scorer? We talked about it a lot early, right, when the team was struggling. Now we haven't had to break it down as much lately because it's just been automatic. Monsanto, Ladarius Brewer. Monsanto, Ladarius Brewer. And then you have big days here and there from Ty Brewer, Sorrell Smith. David Sloan has been relatively consistent last night, though. Again, things kind of came together for Monsanto. They didn't come together for anybody else. Bad timing to have a bad game. Five points on two of seven from the floor. A quick turnaround. A team that is used to winning at this point, a team that's going to be mad coming off a tight loss at Wofford, and a team that Jason Chase is going to have motivated. I think the big thing is, does Brewer, Sloan, Smith to an extent, and Ty Brewer, Ladarius' brother, do they all shake off that bad game? Do they let it linger in their mind? And that's going to be huge because it's a very difficult stretch, a very busy stretch, and not one that's easy to just put one game in the rearview mirror and focus on the one ahead of you. I think it was very important for ETSU when they lost to Furman to turn around and play a couple days later. And I think this will be the same thing. I think it will be good to play a couple days later, get a couple shots to go down. I think for any love of oneself on offense was very quickly corrected by one film session to go, okay, here's what you did against Citadel against a not a team that ain't going to guard you. Great. Here's what you did against a team that really wanted to guard you, make you uncomfortable, get in your space, push you and shove you around. So how quickly can they adjust to a game? against Mercer, which will play man-to-man defense. You know, they're not uh, – at least last year they didn't quite overplay and, and do that, but they will play man-to-man defense. They will come at you. They're going to play physical. Then on the offensive end, right, it's going to be a lot of that Purdue style, motion, inside-out, layups to threes, not quite VMI layups to threes because they'll take mid-range jumpers and things. But it'll be a, a system that gave you fits, if you remember – last year because they went right into Freedom Hall and picked up that win, only four losses for the Bucks, and one of them being the Mercer Bears, and so now they've got more key pieces. So I think ETSU learned maybe how to defend that a little better last time, but we'll see what they remember. 
but they had a hard time with the motion, the big guy being up top, then cutting down the lane. But how they're going to defend that this year, we'll see. Plus, it's probably, I'm sure, some new wrinkles here or there. But it will be interesting to see what exactly happens moving forward. I think that's another key point. That's the position you're going to have to make sure that you defend at your best tomorrow, that four or five, because you've got massive amounts of size for Mercer. Magic Bender is 6'11", 250. I believe Hasse is 6'9", 253. Now, Hasse is more of that you know, stretch four, so he's going to play on the perimeter a lot, second on the team in threes, both in terms of percentage and in threes taken, but Bender is not someone that's going to do that. He's going to be a strictly inside the arc presence, and he has had big games this year. He's got three with 20-plus, and those days, six of seven from the floor, 10 of 15 from the floor, 10 of 13 from the floor. He had a nine-for-nine nine day against, granted, Columbia International, but very, very efficient, not going to waste a lot of touches. ETSU is not bulky in the post. They are not deep in the post. Silas Adeke is the anchor of that defense. We saw what happened when he got into foul trouble against Alabama. Does Mercer attack him and force Jason Shea to make the decision between Charlie Weber and Richard Moffley? It seems like it's still Weber as that backup 4-5, but Charlie is not someone that is tremendously built, right? He can get muscled down low, and he's had a couple of games in a row where he's made some bad, bad mistakes. He had five fouls in eight minutes on Saturday against the Citadel and missed a couple in close, as you mentioned yesterday, that really could have uh, helped ETSU uh, try and get that would have been an upset on the road as Wofford was favored even without Safford and Gabba going into that contest. So Silas Adeke is going to be a huge key, and keeping him on the floor is going to be so vitally important because behind Silas Adeke is not a lot in terms of seasoned, polished, and ready post players. I, I think that was – you hit it on the head. I think that was a struggle last year. I think it will be interesting to see – this year now. I thought the Bucks did a great job offensively of helping out early on Messiah Jones digging in and the guards kind of knocking the ball away. And then honestly, I don't know, I'd have to go back and watch uh, since I'm teeing the moment, I forget to look at particular things. And don't know if ETSU continued to do that or if Wofford did a better job of spacing and not allowing somebody to quite dig and, and try to slap at the basketball because I think that'll be important. The Bucks can make a couple of the big guys uncomfortable for Mercer so that way it's just not maybe one-on-one with a decade after somebody gets the ball. Or worse, a decade's having to chase from a screen roll or something like that, and you miss a, a rotation coming around. Of course, they're not a big screen roll team. They're a motion team. But still, there's some, some screen sets off the ball where you can get lost if you're a decade or trying to cover something else. So I'll be curious. I did check the three, uh, quote-unquote, last-second shots that would have been taken by the Bears, one for Cummings, one for Alvarez, one for Hasse. So there you go. No answer. Hasse was the guy that hit the game winner. Buddy Bay. So, all right, that's a look at that. Well, we got uh, bold predictions coming up, buddy. We'll see uh, how good we did. I have no idea. It's going to be fun for me. I'm saying I'm psychic on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Someone check to see if I still had a brain. Enjoy the new year with more games, more chances to win, and even more fun from the Tennessee Lottery. And you can play any way you like. Play quick and win big with instant games. Or try drawing-style games that pack a big money punch. So don't drop the ball. Make a resolution to put a little more cash and a whole lot of fun in your pocket today with the Tennessee Lottery. Game-changing fun. Please play responsibly. 
The Tampa Bay Buccaneers have reportedly agreed to terms with free agent wide receiver Antonio Brown. The Warriors' Clay Thompson is out for the season again. This time it's a torn Achilles. Houston loses 27-17 to an 0-5. Now 1-6. Penn State, this is a lifeless organization. Wake Forest basketball's got its man. It's new coach Steve Forbes from East Tennessee State. And this move makes sense on a number of levels. The conference canceled fall sports on Thursday with the hope that those athletic teams can resume in the spring. The SoCon season is done. 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 Jay told me the turkey wasn't enough on Thanksgiving. He went and got two stubs of a brownie to watch brownie. Just disgusting. You should have seen what I ate on the pregame yesterday. Bold predictions. Sandwiches, a shake, some sort of cake, a couple bags of chips. Doesn't matter what kind it does. Great. Just some sort of cake, cake is good for you. You, know, cake. you don't uh, tend to care. Uh, the only thing I was mad about was we weren't, uh, we didn't get to talk about our travel, but we weren't, oh, allowed, we weren't allowed to eat inside um, place we got food from and so we just had to order the food inside get it and then go sit in the car and eat like two heathens it was a it was was very romantic did you and kevin brown have to cuddle on the way back we did not uh we we were a little a little excited because coming from probably the unc a Asheville exit going towards there it was you know the road was still could see the road and then probably a few exits up started to not see the road truck in front of me that was going about 25 who kept trying to wave me in front of him and of course I wasn't because I wanted to follow in his tracks so like he was mad at me and I could care less uh, and here was the, the kicker though right as we start to go up Sam's Gap there's uh, coming off the Mars Hill exit there was a scraper that comes and gets behind us so I'm kind of slowing down thinking alright here we go this bad boy is just going to scrape straight up the mountain I'm going to follow him and there's that weird exit right there to the right which is your last exit before you start to go up Sam's Gap and he hooks a ride. Uh, and it's just us and packed snow going 30 miles an hour up Sam's Gap. Oof. And so we uh, drove in the middle of the road, had to, had to move over twice. A car goes flying by me. A truck goes flying by me. Bold. These people uh, have under, a death wish. And, and, I do not know what they And the, the one truck was a, was a hefty one. Uh, it went by pretty quick. Looked like either a, a, a Dodge or a Dooley or, or, or something that was heavy duty. The car was just a sedan, and he was moving. Interest in that, so we didn't break probably 35 going uphill. We tried to keep it between 25 30 going downhill. It took over an hour for Sam's Gap just to do that, so it was, but we didn't. Uh, at one point, of course, I'm the worst driver of the group, and so Kevin looks at me and says, Well, you're gonna pull over, I don't mind driving. I'm looking at him, I'm like, Where are we pulling over? <laughs> First of all, where are we pulling over? It's packed snow. Like, I don't want to stop momentum at all. That's right. Car just goes sliding down. I mean, or, you, or, or, you, just, or, you know, or you have to go backwards before you go upwards. Like, I, I don't I don't know where we were going to pull over. And then once we get to the Tennessee side, it was somebody had at least North Carolina side wasn't quite stripped. Now, the other side, there were two or three scrapers coming down the mountain. And on the Tennessee side, there were scrapers. So I must have just missed the um, – either they were doing one side and circling back and doing the other. Or I don't know what the problem was. But they, they, the other side looked like it was getting scraped. We were not. But at least on the Tennessee side, they had scraped the left lane and shoved everything to the right. So you did have somewhat of a lane. Problem was that it allowed some ice to get back underneath there as opposed to the packs. You know, where I was just kind of, you know, in my own little world, uh, 
driving on packs now. I want to give you a win just for making it back alive. It was a uh, bold to make that trip. No, I mean, it was funny. We packed up um, extra food and extra things, so we're like, you know what? If, if we have to be stuck, plus we filled up right before we left, so if we had to run the car for six hours idle, you know, until daybreak, we were fine. We were covered. We were covered. And there would have been cuddling time. Uh, let's keep the good times rolling for you. You said that the Buccaneers would win by 20 or more over the Senators. It's the smartest man in the universe. Well done. Well done. They came through. Unfortunately for you, I said that the Bucs would score 100 or more for the first time this season. I, am the I, don't, I don't find those to be a problem. Well, we both get a men's basketball You're right? absolutely right. or a women's basketball. Right? I don't find that to be a problem. You're absolutely right. Uh, two bad things for you. You said BMI would be UNCG. I think you covered that. Are you covering it and again? And I'm going to go ahead and rehash for you everyone that may again? have missed it earlier in the show. I said UNCG would win by 15 or more. I love West Miller. Yes, I do. I love absolutely. West Miller. You can say it, but I'm using it now. West, I think, is great. He is great. 17-point victory for UNCG. 76 He is in shape. You lose. I win. He is the smartest man in the universe. Are you also... Very under pressure, under duress, really. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't totally He's not fair. committed on this. Uh, Furman almost pulled off the upset on Sanford in the first game of their series in women's basketball in the Southern Conference, 78-72, but then got False absolutely hope. destroyed. False hope after the first one. In game number two, 82-255, Furman drops to one and six. That is ETSU women's basketball's opponent this coming weekend. At least we think right now. Uh, fingers crossed that everyone is able to. Could be a Friday, Sunday, is that correct? It is a Friday, Sunday. Oh, it, it is, is a 7 Friday. 7 o'clock on okay. Friday and Sunday, 2 o'clock. We will have the 2 o'clock game on the Buccaneer Sports Network. 1.30 pregame. Uh, so two wins for me, one win for you. I also said that Western Carolina, by the way, would beat Furman. And we got close. I saw Western Carolina win against somebody on the men's side. Ended up being the Citadel, lost by six to Furman. So two of three for me, the rare double in bold predictions means I have a lead for the first time this year, five to four. Eat that, Sandoz. A lot of hostility. Right Eat here. that. No more words from you today. Sandoz and the sidekick. Kind of hungry now. With Mike Algerly in bold predictions, five to four. What are we going to do on Friday? Uh, we got a Super Bowl prediction together. Oh, we got these Super Bowl props. Remember your props yeah, over yeah. here. Women's women's basketball, men's basketball previews, and signing day. And right? signing day. It, it, it might show. be. It might be a full show, or we might do a quick thirty-minute signing day, extra special, separate from it. I don't know. We'll see. All right, we'll be back with you Thursday, Friday, whenever we feel like it. Fan or sidekick. Bye, Network. Cowboy up. Go play ball.